So in the Gospel of John, today we're going to look at the famous story. Don't want to forget this. Nobody wants a 55-minute sermon, right? Amen. (laughs) We're looking at the story of of doubting Thomas today. And honestly, this passage, as I was studying it, meditating it, praying over it, really surprised me at how beautiful it was. So I I hope that same will affect you today as we study it. Would you please stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is John uh, chapter 20 from verse 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your... Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way it has the power to open our minds, to open our hearts, and to show us things that we cannot see, to show us the reality of the true world as it really is, the seen and the unseen, how you have created it. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are not, as your people, locked into the small closet of believing that only those things that we see are those things that are real, but we know through your word, through your spirit that you have given us, that you and everything, even the things we can't see, are real and even more real than this world. So Lord, help us see what Thomas saw this day as we worship you today, as we praise you today. Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I used to, before I was pastor of this church a while ago, I used to oversee the altar call ministry at a giant mega church, 14,000 member church. The altar call ministry was three times bigger than this church. <laughs> Give you a perspective of how big that church was. It was one of many ministries. And um, our job was, for the most, most part, was people would receive Christ in the service and then we would come back into our room after the service and we would share the gospel with them but 
The reality was that most people that were coming up front were in some kind of crisis and they were really trying to recommit their lives to Jesus and they really needed prayer or counseling or something like that. And usually our go-to in those situations was to think, to try and think it through with them. Think through it with them. What kind of what book should you read? What would help you in this thing? And try to think and help them think through a solution. Um, it was very pra- pragmatic. It was very intellectual. Uh, and then one day, a good friend of mine who had come, to, come into the church and then ended up leaving the church, she, she, she left Jesus for a man, and the man failed her, and she came back to our altar call room uh, and was just dis- distraught, distraught. And I sat down at, with, with her, and m- many of you remember Linda Perry, used to be a member here at this church. Linda, who used to play the tambourine right there about where the Fitzpatricks are sitting right now. <laughs> Amazing woman of God. Her and her best friend were with me, and we sat down with this woman, and she was just distraught. I mean, crying, big old gasping, ugly sobs, just convulsing in sobs, just confessing her sin, confessing her sin. And Linda, Linda got down on her face and looked at her right in the face. She didn't tell her. She didn't like try to help her think through it. She didn't think about what book to read. She looked her right in the face and she goes, Girl, you got to praise your way through the pain. You got to praise your way through the pain. And that was, it hit, that hit me like a lightning bolt. I was like, That sounds really biblical. <laughs> that sounds really biblical. We're not supposed to be thinking through this. She was encouraging her to praise God, to worship God, to be in prayer, and to, be, and to praise God through the pain and the fear and the doubt of everything that she was feeling, and that through that would come healing and relief. It was a fundamentally different approach, right? In our age of intellectual skepticism, we have, as we often do, we've assumed the presuppositions or the foundational beliefs of our attackers. Christianity is attacked as being irrational, and so we go about our business as busy bees trying to prove how rational it is, which it is, but in, in, the, in the course of it, oftentimes we go way beyond that and tr- start treating it as if Christianity is just a rational faith, that it's only about intellectual knowledge and reason. Uh, but Christianity, as reasonable as it is, is fundamentally a mystical religion. Mystical is almost a bad word in our culture. Mystical almost means like make-believe. It's almost synonymous with make-believe in our culture, but that's not what it means. It means connection with the real reality of the spiritual world. It is a spiritual religion. It relies primarily on the power of the Holy Spirit Our rational thought has to do a lot with that. It's a big part of it. But ultimately, it relies on the power of the Holy Spirit for its power. And we forget that, and we get into trouble. Thomas is going to learn that lesson today in a super big way, and I hope we do too. So big idea, the thesis, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else out of this passage is this. That Thomas, uh, that out of the darkness of doubt... Jesus reveals the divine mystery that God died for us. Out of the darkness of doubt, 
Jesus reveals the divine mystery that God died for us. Now let's look at that, break it down one part at a time. First part, out of the darkness of doubt. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas says. I will never believe. Super strong statement. We, Thomas is really expressing the, the spirit of our age. We live in an age of skepticism. You can't see it. It doesn't exist. This is, let me read a quote. This is my, one of my favorite atheists, Sam Harris. I love Sam Harris because he is so good at being bad. Uh, this is what Sam Harris says. Sam, Sam Harris says, Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that a frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else and to be persuaded only to the extent that you give it. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. What's he saying? He's saying, of course, that the Bible has no intellectual or no evidence to back it up. He's just making that outright claim without supporting it in any way. But he's making the claim that we, in, in, in most, normally will need evidence to, to accept things, except when it comes to the things of religion. He's making this fundamental, basically the claim he's making all in all, is that the way you go about proving the truth of religious claims is exactly the same way you go about proving the truth that a frozen yogurt can make you invisible. Um, and long before, long before Sam Harris, long before any of his predecessors, long before anyone was a skeptic, Thomas. Thomas is the OG. He's the original skeptic. And he's expressing that, all that, those same ideas right here. Unless I see it, it's not real. If I can't touch it, it doesn't exist. He's saying what I can examine with my senses is what determines reality. Uh, and our, that's, our, that's, our, that's the air we breathe culturally, more or less, right? Nancy Piercy in her writings, talks about how there's two, uh, that we've created a world with two stories, the world of reality and fact and the world of fiction or myth or fallacy and anything that you cannot see or touch or prove with your senses and your reason gets thrown into the box of fake and anything that you can touch or, or, or examine with your senses and your reason gets put into the box of real and that that's, how we, that's how we think culturally and that's how people use that's how people use to discredit and to discount any claim of the spiritual of the supernatural the spiritual including including christianity but what's the what's the problem with that there's some obvious ones i can't go into all of them the problem with that the dark side of that kind of skepticism 
is the fact that there's all kinds of intangible realities that we can't touch or see or feel. And oftentimes, those are, the, those are really the things, Tim Keller talks about how those are the things that make life worthwhile, that make life livable. Um, can't, we, can't, we, can, we can discover, but we cannot touch or see mathematics. We can discover, but we cannot touch or see logic. So the very foundations of reason are intangible things that we can't prove with this model of skepticism. But on top of that, you can't see or you can't touch love. You can't touch beauty. You can't touch loyalty. You can't touch friendship. You can't touch all kinds of things that make life worth living and worth beautiful. I mean, imagine a world where we really lived out that idea that only the things that you see and touch are real. Can you even imagine what kind of awful world that would be? No one can live like that. If your wife said, honey, I love you. No, you don't. (laughs) There is no such thing as love. Nobody would want to live in that world. But it comes in awful handy when you want to discount things that are contrary to what you want to believe. And that's how it gets used. Really, honestly, in my mind, I think that that idea of skepticism is a large part of the tool bag of the satanic blindness that causes us to use our reason unreasonably and blind us to truth. But really, the, the problem I want to bring out now that we've exposed how our culture thinks, it's not them versus us, it's how does that affect us? The fact is that that has really snuck its way into the church, that we are all products of our environment and we bring it into Christianity. Think about how we treat apologetics. We think about apologetics or, or uh, the arguments for the faith almost as synonymous with evangelism, i.e., if I learn the arguments and I know the arguments and I get in an argument with an unbeliever, all I have to do is out-argue him and then he will have to admit that Christianity is true. Um, one of our professors at seminary used to say, there's no altar calls in, van- in, in apologetics. <laughs> there are no altar calls in apologetics. Apologetics are useful. Uh, it can help to shut the mouth of the unbeliever. One of our other professors used to say, apologists are like the watchdogs of the church. You don't really want to invite them in because they are so aggressive, but they're good to hang out by the front door. <laughs> But how, have you ever been discouraged that so you have a friend or a relative or a loved one and you, you talk about the faith and you give them some great arguments and they totally dismiss it for something silly and walk away and we're crushed. Our heart hurts. Why? Because we have this unrealist expectation. We're skeptics. We think that the argument is what saves people, but it is not. It's useful. It's a tool, but it's not what saves people. What about how... We deal with our own doubts and our own fears. When we come and we have serious doubts or we're struggling with doubts about the faith or we have fear, our first thought is to, what book do I need to read? And we try to think it through because we're rationalists, because we're skeptics. How many of you have thought your way and thought yourself into a corner that you couldn't get out of? One spiritual thing. You've thought it through and it kept getting worse until you were just almost at wit's, wit's end. It, exa- it, makes our, it makes it worse when we have that limited view of reality. The reality is you praise your way through the pain. You 
praise your way through the doubt. Now the point is, the point is not that there isn't sufficient evidence for the Christian faith. There is. Uh, it's not the point. The point is not that, there, that the intellect doesn't play a role in our spiritual life. It does, but that it's not enough. We need something more. We need Jesus to reveal the divine mystery. So point two, second part. Out of the darkness of doubt, part two, we need Jesus to reveal the divine mystery. Look at verses 26 through 28. So eight days later... That's the Hebrew way of saying next Sunday, the next Lord's Day. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. There was a, one, of a, one of the same professors I just mentioned used to tell a story in one of our theology classes of a Jewish rabbi theologian named uh, Pinchas Lapid. And Pinchas Lapid was a Jewish rabbi who had the distinction of coming to believe through his own study of the New Testament that Jesus Christ did actually resurrect from the dead. He actually believed in the resurrection. But then he said, but what that means is weird stuff happens all the time. <laughs> that was his conclusion. The guy, the guy named Barry Schwartz, another guy named Barry Schwartz, who was one of the lead scientists and the photographer on the Shroud of Turin, um, whether, whatever you may or may not believe about the Shroud of Turin, Barry came to believe that the Shroud of Turin was legit, that it really was the burial cloth of Jesus, and that the marks on it could only be produced by some sort of miraculous, supernatural resurrection from the dead. He became to believe in the resurrection through science. But then at the end of the day, he was like, but, yeah, weird stuff happens all the time. I mean, and, and like I just said, how many times have you had conversations with people and you've brought mountains or you've brought overwhelming evidence and arguments for the faith and they just dismiss it for some silly idea and go along believing exactly what they want to believe in the face of better information and arguments? Um, the point of it is, even if faith, even those men, Pinchas Lapid, Barry Schwartz, people that we know confronted with the reality of the resurrection was not enough for them to come to believe in who Jesus really was. There was something more that was needed. The popular opinion on this text really is this, this is an argument for seeing is believing. In other words, Thomas says, I don't believe it unless I see it. Jesus shows up and says, check it out. And Thomas then says, okay, I get it, I believe. But that's not what really is happening here. This is a text really for the fact that believing is seeing. How? Let's look what's actually happening here. First, uh, Thomas wants to penetrate the divine mysticism with his 
reason, with his empiricism, with his skepticism. He wants to penetrate the divine mystery with his mind and his ability to see and experience and examine and reason through things. Um, And he uses this over-the-top language. I will never believe, really, to buttress what he's trying to say. And um, even though, you know, he's got 10 of his best friends, guys that he's been through thick and thin with, they're saying, we have seen the Lord, and he doesn't, won't believe them in face of this argument that he's making. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. And so then Jesus shows up. Who takes the initiative? Jesus. Jesus takes the initiative, appears before him, uh, and, and just basically for Thomas, he appears to Thomas, uh, and there's no rebuke. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what does that say about us when we're in doubt and our worries about whether, you know, what is God thinking about us when we're having doubts? Thomas, when Jesus shows up, there is no rebuke for Thomas. He doesn't show up and say, you awful unbeliever. He shows up and in mercy and in compassion and in honest concern, he says, look. And he presents himself to Thomas to see. Uh... But here's the thing. Thomas never touches him. There's nothing in the text that let it lead us to believe that Thomas actually put his finger through Jesus or even worse, take his hand and put it in an open spear wound in his side. That's gross. Nothing in the text tells us that he did any of those things. It was just the presence of Jesus in his initiative showing up shocked Thomas and broke him and brought him out of his doubt. And listen to what he says. Listen to what Thomas says. He does not, like Pinchas Lapide or Barry Schwartz, just say, wow, weird stuff happens all the time. Check it out. Jesus is back. Nor does he think to himself, his, what his eyes see, his eyes and his senses are giving him just enough information to think maybe this is another Lazarus moment, a resuscitation from the dead. Wow, that's crazy. Jesus brought Lazarus back, now he's brought himself back from the dead. He doesn't say, whoa, you're back from the dead. Listen to what he says. His answer is this. He says, my Lord and my God. Where did he pull that from? He's not, listen to what he's saying. All commentators are agreed that he is saying that the, 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 the correspondent to that, Lord is Yahweh, Elohim, or, and God is Elohim. He is saying, Yahweh, Elohim, my Lord and my God. He is now speaking of Jesus in the same terms that the Old Testament spoke of God himself, which is again fulfilling what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, Now the Son will be honored just as the Father. In John 8, He says that now that the Son of Man has been lifted up, you will know that I am the covenantal name of God. Same author, John, in Revelation 4.11, uses those same terms. You are worthy, O Lord and God, speaking of the Father on His throne. Which shouldn't surprise us at all, because John... 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus was not playing. He meant what he said. 
And what does that mean? What that means is that obviously Thomas saw way more than his eyes were capable of seeing. The divine mystery was revealed to him that this wasn't a resuscitation. This was the incarnate God who had risen from the dead to bring life to his people and he proclaims my Lord and my God. Gnarly. Thomas the doubter. Thomas the doubter is, listen to this, he is given the honor in the New Testament of speaking, the, being the first guy to speak the ultimate reality of who Jesus is. Even more than Peter, when Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Still in much smaller terms, Thomas gets the whole thing. My Lord, Yahweh, my God, Elohim, you are the God of the Old Testament. Thomas, the doubter. Man, what does that say about us and our attitudes when we're doubting and when we're fearful and how God looks at us? Do you ever think when you're doubting or when you're fearful that you're worried that God is thinking less of you or that he doesn't honor you or love you as much or that somehow that makes you less than or somehow unloved by God? This should tell us because Thomas, the doubter, was given that honor. God, we've seen this a couple of times through the text. He does this on purpose to show us that even in our doubt, even in our fear, he loves us and we are honored in the kingdom. He lets Thomas, the doubter, be the guy who says it out loud and proud. You are my Lord and my God. And that tells us, tells us, some, tells us something. That when we're doubting, when we're fearful, the thing to not do, to not be afraid, not run from God, the thing to not do is to try to think your way out of it when you'll just think yourself into a corner. The thing to do when we are doubtful, when we are fearful, is to praise our way through the doubt praise our way through the pain and this tells us that we know when we do that Jesus will come to us he will reveal the divine mystery of God's love for us not by thinking but by praising praying worship we can expect relief we don't do that man I know it's, it's, it's not my first thought my first thought because I'm a skeptic is always what do I need to read what do I need to do how can I work my way out of this? And my first thought is not, just go, get alone, get on your knees and just pray and praise God. Speak of his beauty and wonder. Thank him for the myriad blessings that come to mind and continue in that. Stay in that. Breathe it in and be in his reality. That's where the relief comes from. Now, can I, can I geek out theologically just for one minute here? Please. Thank you. As we've seen, we've seen through this last couple of parts, I brought out that John is, is thinking about things or he's presenting things to us almost in liturgical terms, in, as in he's not presenting these things as dogmatic theological propositions. He's presenting all these things in the sense of the worship of the church. He keeps 
over and over again. It's the first day of the week. It's the Lord's Day. Jesus comes and is, makes himself known to his people. Um, they break bread. They worship him. They praise him. He reveals himself to his people. Um, always on the first day of the week. Uh, um, and here, the same thing is going. John is presenting this to us in the form of, of the early worship of the church. Remember, this gospel was written in about 90 AD, right? And so he's teaching us in these ways. And if that's true, then what Thomas is doing here is the doxology. He's praising God as part of the worship and service of the church. But even more than that, even more amazing than that, is that Thomas's words here are the response almost the covenant ratification of Jesus' promise to Mary Magdalene when Mary Magdalene grabbed him and he promised us that it was now our father, his father, our father, his God, our God. The covenant had been fulfilled by the cross. We had been brought into the family. And now Jesus is saying to us, this is your, your, God is your father. God is your God. And Thomas answers that fulfilling covenant with the, with the response of my God, my Lord, my God, in a covenant ratification. Mind-blowing. You think about it. You think it through. I am, I am so seriously considering moving where we sing the doxology to right after the, the pardon of sin, right after the gospel reading and pardon of sin because of just this reason. Because that's what's happening here. <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? Okay, but here's the biggest thing. This is what's important. Is that the substance of the divine mystery, the substance of what is being revealed to us is something that we would never imagine in our own, in our amazing wildest dreams. Something we would never come up with on our own. And that is the fact that God died for us. Not a man. Not an ascended master. Not an angel, but the God of the universe died for us. Last point. God died for us. Look at verse 29 and 31. And so Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Another popular opinion about this passage is that it pits seeing and believing against not seeing and believing. In other words... In other words, the people who don't see and believe are far superior and more spiritual to the weak people who see and believe or must see and believe. But is that, is that really what's happening? Let's think about that for a minute. If we do the math, what are, how many people are in those different camps? Let's just, just rough numbers. Let's say there's two billion Christians in the world now. There's been... Two and a half billion have already died. 4.5 billion, just rough estimates that I'm working this out. 4.5 billion Christians total, and we know from Paul in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that maybe 600 people total saw the risen Lord. That means that, means that the, the number of people who have not seen and believed are just 
crazy bigger than the people who have seen and believed. It's out of one person out of 650 million saw and believed, which is 0.00000015%. You mathematicians can tell us what that means, but obviously it's tiny, right? Almost everybody who has ever believed in Jesus has believed in him and not seen him. So this really it can't be talking about if that's true if it's talking about how we're so superior for not seeing and believing then it's you know it's almost worthless because there's 650 million of us to one. Not a big deal, right? You're not super special. <laughs> this is not saying that what it is saying is it's just rather it's speaking of a time of transition from the era of the era of seeing when Jesus was with the disciples to the era of hearing which is in what we are in now the era of hearing hearing the gospel produces faith the power of the spirit works through the hearing of the word and that is a wonderful and beautiful thing and what's happening here really is at the end of this, this is really the end of, this is a, a, a closing part of the, the last act of, of, the, of one of the last acts of the gospel. The next chapter is kind of an epilogue. We get some more information about Jesus, but there's really a sense of closure here. And at the end of this scene, um, something different happens. There's, there's, a, there's a concept in theater called the fourth wall. Those of you who are familiar with theater and theater production know the fourth wall is when you see a play and there's the three walls of the stage, there's an imaginary fourth wall on the, on the stage in the play that, that, is, that is imaginarily not imp- is impenetrable. The actors always pretend like there's a wall there and they don't interact with anyone in the crowd. And when they do, in those rare moments when an actor will interact or directly address the crowd, it's called breaking the fourth wall. Uh, and really, this, there's a sense when Jesus is doing that at the end of this drama, the end of this astonishing story of his incarnation and life and perfect sinless life and many signs that he's delivered and his being lifted up and glorified on the cross and exercising power by bring, on the cross by bringing salvation to his people and then rising from the dead as proof to us of his of vindication of Jesus and his righteousness at the end of this, it's almost like Jesus breaks the fourth wall and turns and looks at the vast audience of Christians' future, billions of us, and says, look, you are blessed. You are blessed. Jesus says that we are blessed because we've been given something. We've been given something greater than anyone has ever received. Better than winning the biggest Powerball lottery. Better than finding out you got a billionaire uncle who just gave you the whole inheritance. What he's saying is Jesus is looking at us at the end of this and saying, you are blessed. Not because you thought it through. If anybody here thinks that they're here and they believe in Jesus because they thought through the, the big questions of life and death and salvation and forgiveness and reasonably came to the conclusion of Jesus, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that's not the case. 
if we're here, if we believe in Jesus, it's because we have been given the gift of faith. We've been given the gift of righteousness. Jesus has come to each of us individually and revealed to us the divine mystery through the Spirit. And that divine mystery is that God died for us. The context is the resurrection. The context is Jesus in the flesh with mortal wounds, speaking peace to them. And the, re- the realization that Thomas just came to is that this is the incarnate God who has died for us. The wounds are in the incarnate God. Let, think about that. I mean, we say it a lot. We say it a lot, but it, it, to, to, to let it sink in, there are plenty of religions that expect you to die for God. But Christianity is fundamentally different in saying that God died for us. He became the servant. The master became the servant. The Lord became the servant to bring us eternal life. There's this quote by Herman, Herman Wistius, super respected, old school, 16th, 17th century, reformed theologian. He said, it was the highest pitch of love that Christ would not be glorious without us. Interesting, when Sally Lloyd-Jones says that, people say it's heresy, but when Herman Wistius, the Reformed theologian, says it, we all recognize it for its beauty and its truth. Christ is the incarnate God who came for us and died for us so that we could inherit the new heavens and the new earth. In all of our doubt, in all of our fear, and all of the things that we struggle with, God knew all about those, came and died for you anyways. All the things we think and worry that are going to disqualify us, God knew all about them, came, incarnated, died for you anyways. God, 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 the creator of worlds, the architect of solar systems, the architect of galactic continents, the foundation of all beauty and life, humbled himself and loved us so much, he went through human pain and suffering and life and death to give us life. If he went through all that, do you, think, you really think he's going to take it away from you because you have some doubt or some fear or you some struggling? No. That's not it. That's not even what it's about. Knew all about it. He died for us. And if all that's true, is that the kind of God that we can trust to praise through the pain? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Out of the darkness of doubt, Jesus has revealed the divine mystery that God has died for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. 
It is more beautiful than we can even comprehend. That you would die for us. We don't even know what to say, Lord, but thank you. We love you. Lord, we only ask that you would help us in our unbelief. Help us, Lord, so that we might live lives that are, are, are as grateful as we ought to be. So that we would do all the things that would bring the beauty of your character into the world. That we would love our wives. That we would love our kids. That we would love our co-workers. That we would honor you in the way we live. That we wouldn't trade you in for lesser things. That we would continue by the power of your spirit to worship and praise you even through the suffering of this world to glorify you as God and to and bring this message to other people of who you really are, what you've done for us, how grateful we are for that, and that anyone may be saved and have eternal life by simply believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Lord, use us in our simple gospel presentations and conversations to bring life. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.